This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to episode 309 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Wayne Miller. Now, Wayne is an ATF agent, retired. He specialized in arson investigation, and he's also the author of the brand new book, Burn, Boston, Burn. So this was an incredible conversation. Obviously, we talked about the Boston cases in the 80s, but there were some other incredible stories that came out of this, including him investigating some of the line of duty deaths that we've had in the fire service and also the trauma that that created within him. We don't think of arson investigation really as one of the go-tos when it comes to mental health, but those men and women are also seeing some of these grisly scenes and taking those memories with them as well. So such a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Before we get to that interview, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app that you listen to this on Subscribe to the show so you get notifications when each episode comes out. Leave feedback. I genuinely love it when you leave some feedback on the site and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings truly do make us more and more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then, as I said, take this free library, use it however you think it's going to benefit yourself, your department, and then share it. The more people that we get to hear these incredible men and women's stories, the more lives we're going to improve. So with that being said, I introduce to you... Wayne Miller. Enjoy. So 
So Wayne, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having me, James. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, I am in my finished basement in Franklin, Massachusetts, about 40 miles to the southwest of Boston. All right. Now, I'd love to start at the very beginning of your life. But before we do that, how are you guys holding up in this uh, strange isolation time that we're in? Uh, we happen to be in a, a very good position, both being retired. Um, we have grandchildren who live only 150 yards from us, but we don't actually uh, congregate with them right now. We only see them from across the street or outside, but uh, we're doing very well. Uh, you know, plenty of food and we're staying very safe. We even socialized outside on the front lawn. Uh, with neighbors, they sat like 12 feet away and we all had a cocktail. That was a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, I'm seeing so many great videos. Of course, this is a scary time for people that, you know, for whatever underlying reason are hit very hard by this virus. And obviously the, the hospitals that are strained under, under the peak, as it were. But on the other side, we're seeing so many beautiful moments of people being present with their family. I saw one that I posted the other day of a, a granddad dancing with his granddaughter and they were either sides of the street and they were having like a dance off. And it was just <laughs> these beautiful moments that you're seeing with the families, uh, despite, you know, obviously the fear of what's going on outside. I saw that. They both had a lot of great moves. They did. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of children then, so let's go back to, to the beginning. Where were you born and what was your family unit like? Well, very interesting. Uh, I was born at West Point, New York. The military hospital. Uh, my father was U.S. military, and he had just come from post World War II Austria, where he had married my mother. Uh, my mom is Austrian, was Austrian, she's passed away now, but uh, she uh, married him in 1950, and I was born in uh, 53. Right. Now, going back to your grandmother, now you, you mentioned in the book that she was actually part of Hitler Youth. And obviously, I'm sure young children didn't really have a choice back then. So what, what was it she told you about that experience? Uh, my mother, actually. Yeah, my grandmother. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Your mother. That's right. Um, yeah, my mom, uh, she was in high school at the time. And again, when Hitler swooped into Austria and took it over, uh, nobody had a choice at that time. So... They closed down the high schools pretty much, but they, uh, everybody had to join the Hitler Youth. Uh, her dad was not a uh, fan of Hitler. It sort of reminded me of the Von Trapp movie, you know, Sound of Music type of thing. And um, she never went back to high school until after the war was over. Uh, she would have been, she was born in 1930, so you can think, you know, in the late uh well, yes, born in 1930. By the time he moved in, she was about 12, 14, 15 years old. And uh, she said it was just a, a totally different lifestyle. And then, you know, bombings were, she could, they could hear bombs in the distance. Nothing ever came close, you know. Yeah, no, no Austria is beautiful. I used to ski there when I was a little boy um, in the Innsbruck area. And it's just so weird now being 46, looking back. And when I was skiing as a young man, it was only... Um, you know what not even 40 years prior to that 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 was going on so um, you know a it's it's interesting to see 
you see all these these people in the Middle East now. Like, how can they have these these mindsets? And then you look back at at that. Well, if you take children and, and you feed them through your kind of grooming channel through Hit the Youth or you know the ISIS route or whatever it is, that's how you create these these people with these crazy ideologies when they get older. So it's it's fantastic, obviously, that that was stopped in its tracks, but also that another generation of of the Nazi mentality wasn't groomed. Correct. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I was brainwashed in a different way when uh, I was born at West Point. I think they had me saluting when I was still in the crib. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. But it's true. I mean, you can you can you can lead us in a great way or or a bad way. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Children are are a blank slate. You know, a blank canvas. So, um, you know, that that's why I think how we're raised is so important. I'd love to actually even touch on that a little bit later when we talk about arson of, of if you saw any of uh, the the common denominators in the, the childhood of some of these men. But um what did uh what did your mom and dad do um over here? Um my mom basically was a housewife but uh she became a waitress and waitress for like thirty years until she uh ruined her back and neck. You know, and she had some 20, multi, uh, 20 skeletal operations in her body. And nothing, nothing was killing her, uh, like a heart or an organ or anything like that, but she had shoulders, back, neck, hips, elbows, everything done. Uh, my dad actually left when I was six months old, and he stayed in the military here in the United States until he became an air traffic controller in Dothan, Alabama. And I met him again in night uh, when I was forty-four years old. Right. So were you ra- raised by uh, on paper stepdad, probably in real life father? Yep. My my mom remarried to a uh, uh, man from Rhode Island. My stepdad when I was only five years old. So he's still alive. Uh, he we we go out and play golf together, and um, you know, we bowl together. Um, very energetic, and um, he's been my dad growing up my whole life. And played. He taught me how to play hockey when I was a kid, and baseball, and football, and all the sports. Brilliant. Well, I was going to ask you that, but you just answered that question. So, so you were an athlete when you were younger. What about career aspirations? What were you hoping to be when you were in high school? Uh, I wanted to go into engineering and actually be an architect. So, what really what funny how things happen. So. I used to write a lot when I was a kid, and then, you know, I was really good in math and science in high school. I did extremely well in high school. Uh, I tried to go to West Point, actually. I was I applied, and I became a second alternate for the state of Rhode Island. What they do, they pick the top choice, and then there's a the first alternate and second alternate. And you, there is a chance that you could possibly go, but uh, I didn't end up going. But... Um, I went into engineering at the University of Connecticut with uh, designs of trying to be an architect eventually. I hated engineering. <laughs> I got out of there within one year and went into criminal justice. And I'm not sure how that happened. I don't know if I was watching movies, uh, crazy movies like Dirty Harry, etc. But I'll tell you, when I got into law enforcement criminal justice program, I loved it for the first minute. And did you have any desire to go a specific route, or were you just looking at a regular patrol officer at that point? Um, 
in my mind, it was something more like being a Serpico, working undercover, um, rooting out, you know, not just uh, drugs or things like that, but, you know, evil, uh, corruption, things like that. Uh, I always wanted to do undercover work. Right. So tell me about your journey into the uh, ATF then. Well, at Bryant College, which is now Bryant University, they had a criminal justice program. And it was about my junior year, and I took one of those winter session classes, you know, those intense three-week courses where you have a class every single day during the break. Yeah. And it was a drug class, and I raised my hand constantly. And the head of that class, uh, Charlie Hackadorian, he was the head of the Rhode Island Division of Drug Control. He asked me, come up, come up here after class. So he had a conversation with me, and he said, would you like to do some work? So here I am, junior in college, and I ended up working undercover around the state of Rhode Island, but not at the college at all. Uh, but uh, two nights a week, uh, I would work at various locations around the state of Rhode Island, and I'd have a couple handlers working with me, and I was buying drugs on the streets. And with that specific work, because obviously you hadn't found arson yet, did you, were you enjoying that particular one? Or it, let me say that, were you enjoying it? And also, were you seeing it was making a difference? Uh, you know, we didn't make a lot of great cases. Um, I did enjoy doing it to a point. Uh, I ended up, the summer I graduated, because of that undercover job I already had, I ended up working on Cape Cod in the uh, Dennis Police Department. Uh, did undercover down there for an entire summer. And, you know, it becomes very strange. I work, I played on a softball team down there, and I, I think virtually everybody was doing drugs, and uh, some of them were selling drugs, and I was the straight guy pretending to be one of them. And it kind of plays with your mind a bit. And I also went to the beaches, and I made a lot of, I'll call them quote-unquote friends, but here I am living a lie the whole time doing the undercover work, trying to buy drugs off of people. But uh, it was a great experience, and because of those jobs, it helped me to uh, apply to ATF at some point. Brilliant. Well, let's talk about that. So how did you, how did you find yourself in ATF, specifically in the arson side? In, uh, when I got accepted with ATF was the uh, summer of 1976. And ATF wasn't really working on arson at all in 76. We were all doing gun cases at the time. I was still doing some undercover work, uh, buying guns on the streets of Boston. I, I always tell people that I know exactly what bar I was in in Hyde Park section of Boston the night Elvis died, uh, trying to buy guns. I, I ended up having a 46 machine gun case at one point, but, um, I still realized that there was something missing, something more I wanted to do besides gun cases and doing undercover like that. So when ATF started getting serious about working on fires, which was very late, the end, end of the 70s into 1980s, um, I decided that I wanted to work on fire cases. And I started to, I took a, National Fire Academy course and the State Fire Academy course, both of them two week long. Uh, I took those in 1980 and 81, but yet ATF didn't form an arson task force in Boston until March 
1982, which I volunteered for. Brilliant. And obviously the timing for that we're going to, we're going to hear is perfect. But what I would love to do is take a step back and paint the picture of the kind of uh, environment that they claimed was the trigger to, to initiate in this. Now, I find this very weird because when I did some research, I remember that kind of time being very affluent. And just to put it into perspective, when we were seeing people rioting over cabbage patch dolls, you know, and literally destroying department stores trying to get to them. That was the early 80s. And I, and when you Google, you know, financial crisis in America during this last century, you know, the, the early 80s don't pop up as, as some of our worst times. So ex- explain to me what was happening in Boston as far as layoffs um, and, and the kind of change in staffing from ideal to, to where it was at the beginning of that decade. Well, in late 70s, Boston had just come out of the busing segregation problems that we had here. And we also had a major arson problem in the city of Boston. Uh, there was a lot of arson for profit going on, a lot of landlords burning their properties. But uh, in the early 80s, and actually on November 4th, 1980, uh, President Reagan got voted into office, but Massachusetts citizens voted a proposition two and a half into office. And proposition two and a half um, was a tax-cutting measure. It was modeled after uh, Proposition 13 in California. And let's say you have a house that's worth $100,000. Proposition two and a half was supposed to keep the taxes at two and a half percent of your property value, so 2500 And there were a lot of stipulations when property values go up or go down, how that would affect uh, your taxes, your individual taxes. With that, when that got voted in, cities and towns did not know where the money was going to come from. Older cities, like the city of Boston, had a lot of properties that weren't valued very high to begin with. So when you keep the value down to 2.5%, that meant a lot of taxes got cut from the coffers. And because of that, the typical people get laid off, the school teachers, firefighters, and police officers. And just to, I'll stick with the fire department at this point. The city of Boston had 1,700 firefighter positions in 1982, at the beginning of 82. Because of Proposition 2.5, they had 200 positions lost through rapid attrition retirements, and 400 layoffs. Uh, they happened over a couple waves, like 150 at a time. But over a course of like six to 12 months, they lost altogether 600 out of 1,700. What is that? Nearly 40 percent? Yeah, it's more than a shift. More than an entire shift for the whole city. Yes, absolutely. On top of that, fire companies, 20 fire companies, firehouses were closed. The apparatus was sitting in the bays. Nobody's driving them. Nobody's going to fires with them. On, on the big overhead doors, they spray painted, closed. And so you can just imagine if that firehouse is around the corner from your house and your house catches on fire, nobody's going to come to your fire right away because they're coming from now from another mile down the street somewhere in the city. So you've got to Every minute, you know, in a fire, every minute the fire is growing. 
So that's what I want to underline. So here we are now, um, you know, and obviously we're in a very strange time with this, uh, this isolation period. And there's going to be some lessons learned for this. But when I look back at this time in Boston, where, you know, we cut so many firehouses and I've seen periods, obviously 2006, 2007 period with the, the housing crash. We saw a kind of mini version again of, you know, the beginning of the century, but obviously not even anywhere near as severe, but it's lessons learned. And I see this pattern over and over and over again where schools, you know, EMS, uh, law enforcement, you know, fire are the ones that get cut. And yet this example, you know, and I remember because I was a, you know, a 10 year old kid at this point, we weren't in some crisis, but like you said, this one, tax cut this one political move cut the legs out of all the most important things that we rely on and now i think that we're seeing it perfectly underlined like people are homeschooling their kids going teachers i'm so sorry you can have them back now you know and and the fire and, and the, the hospitals these are the people we're relying on and what what is so infuriating is people you know they, they hail these people like 9 11 is a perfect example and then fast forward just a few short years those men and women are dying from cancer and they're pleading with their city to even help financially support them. So I just kind of wanted to have this discussion with you to underline that when are we going to stop cutting the most vital things while still as, as, as members of the community having the money for all the materialistic stuff, the, the cabbage patch dolls, the jet skis, the RVs, the, you know, the $60,000 minivans, but then have the audacity to cut schools fire police it, it's i i hope one day we can actually stop knee-jerking to cutting the very people that we rely on you hear it all the time uh from the people around town uh you know firefighters just sit around all day and other people just think you know they're they're just cleaning fire trucks and they're just hanging out and they're not really doing much i mean especially you know the fires are really down now in the 2020 uh, and there's a lot more EMS calls for fire departments, but people don't see them out there busting their butt at fires too often. How many building fires in the town of Franklin? Uh, there's like 30,000 people in my town. Um, we probably get two major structure fires a year. So a lot of people just think, well, they shouldn't be that highly paid. Well, I'm telling you, when that alarm goes off and you need them, those guys should be highly paid because they're putting their life on the line every single time they go out that door. Yeah, and I agree. And I, I use the analogy a lot of, of the security guard in, let's say, an apartment complex. You know, the guy that sits at the front desk. Is he out punching, you know, bad guys in the face all day? No, he's there as a deterrent and, and to act when he's needed. And that's the thing is you can't, you don't crash your car every day just to get value for money for your insurance. You know, that's not, it's a different philosophy than... You know, I guess people passing people doing construction on a road and saying, "Oh, why why aren't they working?" Which again, they're probably on a break too, so just calm down. But, but yeah, I think that's it is such a misconception. This is 2020. Like we've been doing EMS for 50 years in much of the state now, and you stand on any main through road. I mean, I'm I'm in Ocala. It's not a big town where I live, and there's sirens constantly of these men and women running their rear ends off on wrecks, fire alarms, you know, actual fires. Um, and then EMS calls galore. So I think that that myth, I, I wonder how we're going to bust that myth that firemen are sitting around playing cards and smoking cigars, because that's that's about 100 years old, that, that idea. Yes, I agree. 
All right. Well, then now I've got my little soapbox down again. (laughs) It's a great way to illustrate this because this is the crisis they're in. So a third of the fire department is gone. Fire stations are cut everywhere. So just before we get to the arsonists, as a side note, can you, in all the the kind of uh, investigation that you did, can you can you point to any fires where lives were lost because they were close to a closed fire station? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was one in Brighton, Massachusetts, where uh, two young men got stuck in a house. And, you know, as part of the story in my book, um, it talks about them being carried out in body bags. And then there was a second one within two weeks where one of the arsonists was present uh, watching the fire because these guys were also fire buffs. Um, we call them sparks here in Boston. Um, there are fire clubs and fire buff clubs all over the United States and all over the world, actually. And they are legitimate people who collect memorabilia, who, uh, you know, love apparatus, take pictures of apparatus, know every piece out there. And they go to some people run to fires. And in this particular group of people in Boston, we had a lot of Boston, uh, fire buffs, including, and they, you recognize the name Arthur Fiedler? I do not, no. He was the maestro for the Boston Pops. He, uh, some of the famous music you hear at Christmas time came from him and, and the Boston Pops. Okay. Uh, and he, he was famous for 30 years leading the, the Boston Symphony here in the Boston Pops. And uh, he was a big fire buff. And the Fire Museum here in Boston actually has oh, a collection of maybe 30 helmets that he had collected over the years and they own them now but so one of these eventual arsonists he he's ran to one of these fires and he sees a couple other people pulled out of the house and they're barely alive and there was only a deputy chief there who said come over here and help me and so this civilian is out there humping and helping to try to keep this person alive and one of the two people died in that case. And it really affected uh, a lot of people around the Boston area that people had to die because the firehouse was literally around the corner, but it was closed. Yeah, well, I want to explore that now because I know for some of them, that was a motivator. Obviously, those lines got very blurred very quickly. But I've worked for places where, you know, we've been understaffed and, and people will say, oh, you know, don't don't hurry to get back in service. We need to show them that we need more people, and it's a it's a slippery slope because it might show them the same way as obviously the the thinking with these men was to try and illustrate opening these stations back up. But the problem is, if you don't go back to service, what if someone has a life threatening incident while you're dragging your feet trying to prove a point? You know, so the citizens pay while you're trying to demonstrate this issue. So. Um, I would love, yeah, without obviously going over the entire book, but just giving an overview of what, you know, who these men were and then what their initial motivation was and obviously how, how that slipped you know, dramatically away from trying to do good in the world. Right. Well, the men involved in this book, there were eight of them that became arsonists and one other person who never got involved with setting a fire but was part of a conspiracy. Right. Of the men who were setting fires, three of them were police officers, one being a full-time Boston police officer, and two of them uh, were Boston housing police officers. 
Uh, one of them was a full-time Boston firefighter, and two of them were called firefighters in rural, uh, semi-rural towns. And uh, one owned a security company, and he operated out of South Boston. So these guys also happened to be fire buffs, uh, Sparks. Two of them were actually members of the Boston Sparks Association, one of the oldest uh, sparking clubs in the United States. And uh, again, almost everybody was legitimate in that club except for this small group of guys. And they joined together to set Boston on fire. Their aim was to make the people start screaming, let the press pick it up, let the press stop printing that uh, somebody is setting a lot of fires. And then the mayor of Boston, who at that time was Kevin White, uh, let him know that police and fire are not going to be pawns, that you shouldn't play with these people, and you should keep them on the job. And that was the initial goal for this group. Let's go out and set fires, let the people start getting upset and screaming, and then let the press pick it up, and then let's see if we can hold the city of Boston hostage and extort them, in a sense, to make a change in this law or get the people at least back on the job. Yeah, and through through their kind of distorted lens, I mean, there was there was an element of good deed um, in the same way that, I guess, uh, you know, uh, these men that are uh, beating up their wives think that that's going to stop them you know, wanting to be with another man. You know, I mean, the 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 goal is obviously there, but the the way they go about it is completely distorted. Um, what I want to also touch on just for a second is the ignition device. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong. That was the uh, the cigarette into the matchbook. Is that right? The very first fires these guys set was rows of dumpsters. Uh, for those who are somewhat familiar with Boston, the Charles River divides Cambridge, Massachusetts from downtown Boston. And on the Boston side, there's all these brownstones. These, they look like bricks in a sense, but the brownstones line the street on the Storo Drive side of Boston. And these dumpsters were set one right after another behind every single apartment building, and now they're all condos, but back then they were apartment buildings. Uh, there was a dumpster. So they just drove down the alleyway and tossed the, the matchbook with a cigarette laced through it into each dumpster. And when the dumpsters didn't get the results that they wanted as far as people screaming or the media coverage, they graduated to a, a new device, which was a brown paper bag. Inside the brown paper bag was a Ziploc baggie with Coleman lantern fuel, some tissue over that, and then when they placed the device outside a building, they now graduated to buildings. When they placed the bag, they put the matchbook with the cigarette to give them a little time delay device, set it that way, and then they were off. See, and what's funny is I had Ron Stallworth on the show who was – the Colorado Springs policeman who's uh, African-American who infiltrated the KKK. And in his book, their their plans of, of um, igniting flaming crosses, burning crosses, was they had found somewhere on, on not online, I guess, on in a paper or something, 
this uh, this ignition device where you got the cigarette and this matchbook. So it's funny that those two stories that literally I read almost back to back. I read his and I read yours, and that same you know device was was mentioned in both. But um, I guess it's it's a thing. But obviously they were using it successfully for a while. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking eventually here. 264 buildings. We're not counting any dumpsters or any vehicles or anything like that. Just buildings. In a 22-month period, they set 264 buildings on fire. Right. Well, so, again, blurred lines. Um, the initial thing supposedly was to do good. Anyone listening who's a first responder knows damn well that any sort of arson potentially is going to get us hurt or killed, and obviously civilians as well. Um, at what point, um, uh, let me, let me go back a moment. What, what was the, the early investigation look like? Cause I mean, f- there's a certain point, I know a certain day where a lot of firefighters were hurt, but without jumping the gun, what was your involvement in this case? Um, you know, when did you guys realize that this wasn't just a bunch of random fires, but this was behind, you know, there was someone behind it orchestrating these in an organized way. Right. In a, in a quick little history. They set their first fire February 18, 1982. The Boston Arson Task Force, with ATF and Boston Fire being part of our group and the state police, we were actually formed the first week of March. So two weeks after their fire, just coincidentally, had nothing to do with them. It's just that ATF had three ta- four task force cities, L.A., Chicago, New York, and Boston. So it was just by coincidence, the first week of March, we had our task force up and running with eight guys and a supervisor. And these fires just started happening. As soon as we hit the ground, we had to start going from fire to fire to fire. And when this uptick happened through the spring of 82 into the summer, this was a major uptick because fires were happening two, three, four, up to seven uh, fires set in one night by these guys. So with that happening, Boston in particular was running from fire scene to fire scene doing the origin and cause and trying to figure out what's going on. And then we started having meetings between the agencies. And when they started hitting commercial structures, then we got into it full force trying to figure out exactly what's happening. Now, you, you couldn't help but think, is this a union thing because you laid off so many Boston firefighters? You couldn't help that. It, um, but we got nowhere with that. We had 18 suspects one day, and the next day you have 20, and the next day you have 16, and the next day you add two more. And you, you rule them in, you rule them out, but we came up with nothing all the time. And you got to realize on each one of these fires how much time it actually takes, not just the fire scene, but then you have to interview the owners building business owners, uh, insurance people, uh, witnesses, employees, past employees. You, you just can't have blinders on. Each one had to be actually examined as an individual event for a long time. Yeah. Now, what was the barrier to you being able to find these guys quickly? Was it just the fact that they were so detached from what they were setting fire to? You know, these guys knew the city of Boston extremely well. Uh, a couple of them knew where every firebox, you know, the fireboxes were those little yellow or orange 
uh, boxes on pedestals or on the corner of buildings or on utility poles. And they knew where everyone was. Uh, they knew how the firefighting operations, how, which, who's the first responder for this particular address and that type of thing. So these guys know, they knew the streets. They knew everything. They had their own, they had the radios. So they would go out and set fires, draw fire companies over to one portion of a city and then where that void is, set fires in that area. And, you know, they were setting them with a pattern to begin with. They loved for some reason. They were setting them on early Friday mornings. So they became known as the Friday night, they call it Friday night firebug, but it's it's Friday early mornings. And um, they were setting so many fires during that time period, but then they branched out to other nights of the week. And when we started doing surveillances in the city of Boston, they would go set two south of Boston in one town, and then they'd race right through Boston and set two more just north of the city. How do, how do you potentially, we don't even know who these guys are yet, but how can you even uh, start formulating a pattern, the profiling that comes out eventually in, in criminal justice programs, the FBI and ATF and arson and serial murderers, you couldn't even profile this because you didn't have a center, like if an arsonist lived next door to you, James, he might set the fire two doors over, and then the next week he might go to the next block, and then he might go a little further as he gets more comfortable. So you have like a pattern that grows from a central point. These guys jumped all over the city of Boston and then outside the city. Right, and they and correct me if I'm wrong, they were trying to spark fires that would have been responded to by the closed fire stations. Yes, they did that. And then they started stealing the fireboxes. So now think of a residential neighborhood in a city like Boston and the poorer sections that has at that time had so many abandoned houses. So they would set a fire, draw the fire company, but they stole the firebox. Um, the next few blocks over, they'd set a fire over there, but, Somebody driving by in the middle of the night, how many people are actually going by in a residential neighborhood in the middle of the night? And the firebox would be gone, so you couldn't pull the box, and actually those were voice boxes. You could actually open that little door and actually pull a receiver and talk to Boston Fire Alarm and report it. Well, they took 14 boxes from downtown Boston, and Boston never had more than one or two boxes at the most missing in any year. In 1982, were 14 boxes. So they would set the fire by where the box is missing and then where the firehouses are closed and then back and forth. And the companies were running all over the city. Yeah. So at this point, the only people that are really paying for it and, and you know getting the sharp end of the stick were the actual firefighters responding to these calls. They were trying to bring the Boston Fire Department to their knees, is what they, their expression was. Let's bring them to their knees. Let's wear them out. One fire, the first fire company came from 15 miles away. The first due company for that fire came from 15 miles outside the city uh, because they had multiple armed fires already going on in the city, tying up every company already in the city. So... That's what their aim was. Let's, and the press started picking it up. Exactly what their goal was. Let's have the press pick it up and putting it all over the paper on TV news. 
Yeah. Now, speaking of, of, you know, the demand on the firefighters, tell me about October 2nd, 1982. It's a very pertinent time for many people listening. October 2nd. Now, you got to think. The first fire was February. By October 2nd, they had set in the city of Boston about 120 to 140 fires already. So here we are, the second day of the month. And they set the East Street Military Barracks on fire, and some people call it the Enlisted Manx Club. That whole section, once upon a time, during World War II, was all military. Um, but this was one of the last buildings. It was a two-story wooden structure. And they set it on fire. After they called in, I was, you might have gone ask me about some crazy things they did. They called in a bomb scare at Mass General Hospital because the Boston Bomb Squad office was directly next door to this building. So they got the bomb squad to move to this phony call, and then they set the barracks on fire. The importance of that night is 22 firefighters fell through the roof. They fell into the fire. They broke the backs. They broke their legs. Nobody died, but a lot of serious injuries. That was the second day of the month. October was the third most prolific month in this 22-month spree of setting fires. When I'm talking prolific, October, they set about 40 more fires. And that happened mostly after October 2nd, after they hurt all these firefighters. They got together and said, well, we've got to be more careful and not hurt firefighters. And one guy said, well, it's their fault. They shouldn't have been on the roof. And the other ones blasted him for that because they still cared about firefighters in their strange way. And yet, two or three days later, they set a four-story brick commercial structure on fire. How could they not think that almost the same thing could have happened there? Yeah. I mean, that's again with that that distorted vision. Like these, the, you know, they're targeting some abandoned structures so it wouldn't harm, harm firefighters, but... My best friend pulled a homeless guy out of a commercial structure. You know, I can think of um, apartment complexes I run on in my uh, couple of departments ago that were all boarded up and we would go roll through and, and, you know, very, very poor families would be seen pulling the the plywood back and going inside. So there's no guarantee that you're not going to hurt anyone anytime you set in an arson fire. So it was only literally a miracle that firefighters weren't killed but i mean it sounds like i'm sure a lot of careers were ended in that and that tragic day on october 2nd well i happen to know two of those firefighters because they came to the eventual trials that we had in this case and they came every single day for the trials and uh, they never got back on the job either one of them as a matter of fact i was on the uh, boston half hour nightly entertainment type of show and they carried this story for a full half hour called Chronicle. And uh, you can find it on online. Um, and we asked Manny Gregorio, who was one of the firefighters who was hurt, we asked Manny if he would participate in that program. And um, Manny declined because he still has PTSD 35 years later from that fire. And he never got back on the job. Um, we had a good conversation Christmas time this past Christmas, and um, uh, he really appreciated what we did on this case, but um, it really hurt his life. 
Yeah, well, that's just it. So you've got, just to underline, you've got police officers and you've got firefighters that are the arsonists that are running around basically potentially murdering first responders and civilians. So that being said, lead us through how you and your your team were able to start nailing down who was doing it and then ultimately arrest them. Well, again, through that entire summer and into the early fall, we're running from fire to fire. Uh, working on each separate investigation, we started finding not only that Friday night pattern, but these guys graduated with their device. They used the same device, but they added one more uh, component. Around Boston and the abandoned lots, a lot of people threw their tires, their old tires off their car. So these guys would pick up two or three tires in a night and place the tire either outside a building or inside because there was a lot of debris inside a lot of those buildings and a lot of easy structures to burn. They would take their little paper bag with their incendiary in it and place it inside the, I'll call it tire well. And once you got the device going, got the tire going, that would more rapidly spread the fire. We were finding these now. We were finding the steel belts because before we never found anything of their devices. Even if we got the origin right down to a two or three foot wide area, we never found anything of the device. Now, remember, we had no accelerant canines back then, and Coleman Lantern fuel is not an easy product to discover, especially when you have burned most of it and then add thousands of gallons of water. So now we got steel belts and the bottom tread of some tires, so we could connect these fires much better. So, November 21, 1982, it's what we call Garrity 2. Garrity was a lumberyard in the southwest corner of Boston, right on the Dedham, Massachusetts line. Garrity 1 happened one month earlier, in October. Large, major, multiple alarm, six, seven, eight alarm fires, uh, destroying whole sections of the buildings. Well, on November 21st, Two of the arsonists went inside one of their buildings. Now, these buildings aren't locked up because they're housing plywood and shingles for your house and just stacks and stacks of them. And they have those overhead doors where you just drive through the plastic strips that keep the uh, pigeons out and keep some rain out. So you could walk right through. They place two devices. And when you look at the video, which I have video of that fire, if you look at the video, you're looking at a building that's probably 300 feet by 200 feet with the flames 150 feet above the top of the building. These guys used to go to their fires. It's not unusual. We had dozens and dozens of people who regularly went to these fires. Uh, yeah, you put some of those on the list of suspects. But if you have no evidence, what can you do with it? On that particular fire friend of mine, Nat Whittemore, was a TV cameraman for WBZ TV here in Boston, one of the major stations. Nat is also a fire buff. He loved doing this, but he got paid to be out there every night, take pictures of these fires. And, this, and he knew some of these people. He knew them, didn't particularly like most of them. He thought that they were a little too wild, that they were a little too nasty, that they're Demeanor was not appropriate for being at fires. 
if these guys would jump and holler, they would actually root for the home team. You know who the home team is? The home team is the fire. You firefighters, you're the visitors, right? Yeah. So they would root for the fire. So Matt Whittemore went to that fire too. He comes around the corner and he hears these crazy awful noises coming from a group of people. He turns and focuses in the available light from the fire itself, and he points his camera in that direction. Out of uniform, Robert Grabluski, the Boston cop, he reaches across to his shoulder holster, pulls his sidearm out. Matt Whittemore actually felt like maybe he was going to point it directly at him. Matt was in fear of his life for a moment. But he kept his camera rolling, and the Boston cop raised the gun over his head and waved it around in a wild circle, as if he was on a bucking bronco at a rodeo. Other friends of his said, hey, they're filming you. He put the gun back, and they laughed about it, stuff like that. But that film immortalized these guys on a pile. So what does that prove? We have guys who are fire buffs, sparks, watching a fire, and this guy just does an idiotic thing, waving his gun in the air. Does that prove he's an arsonist? Does that make any of them an arsonist? We have dozens of other guys watching these fires regularly also. So what do we do with that information? Within a couple days, my partner and I, Bill Murphy, a Boston boy, and myself, we go knocking on Grubluski's door, his apartment door. Bobby opens the door. And I call him Bobby a lot of times, too, because eventually I spent two to four hundred hours with this guy. So often I call him by his first name. He opens the door and invites us in. We sit on the couch in his living room. Bobby, law enforcement to law enforcement. You know, we're in the same business. Can you help us out? Do you know anything about these fires? He says, you know, I always wanted to be a firefighter rather than a police officer. You know, I got the police job first, but I'm just a fire buff. I love going to these fires and taking pictures. And he said, I don't know anything at all. I just hang with these guys. and We don't know who's setting these fires. Sitting 10 feet away from us on the floor of his living room is one of those fireboxes that we're missing. Billy puts on his trench coat. Billy always wore that trench coat. I'm telling you. He was a he was a regular Columbo type of guy. Yeah. Stands up and he, he walks over towards the box. He says, oh, my father made lamps out of these or bird cages out of these things. He said, All Billy wanted to do was get a good look at the number that's printed on the front of that box. Box 1712. Billy and I raced back to Boston. Both of us live south of Boston. We didn't need to be going into Boston again at 8.30 at night. But that's what we did because underneath his desk blotter, we had a mimeographed sheet uh, that had the 14 boxes that were missing that year printed on the, box, on the sheet. And box 1712 was the very first one that they stole. And it was stolen because... They actually came on the street, come around the corner, and there was a car on fire in the middle of the street. So the good Samaritans, they were going to call that fire in. Bobby opens the door to the firebox to 
pulls out the receiver and tries talking the fire alarm, and it came in all screeching. He couldn't even understand what they were saying. It angered him. He pulled the box, yanked it, and it came off the pedestal. And they had wire cutters right in the car for some reason, cut the three wires, threw it in the car, and that was the first box they stole. And it's in his living room. How does that actually help us on the case? It gets even more interesting. A couple days later, we go with Boston police and Weymouth, Massachusetts police, where the apartment was. We knock on his door and he's not home. We have a search warrant in hand. We're led into the apartment by management. That darn firebox is still sitting on the same place on the floor. We got no respect in that case. I was going to say, that that's uh, <laughs> may not be the sharpest tool in the box when it comes to police work, huh? <laughs> you know, here we are asking questions, and we're sort of maybe closing in just a little bit, and he leaves it in the same exact spot it was. So we get the box. Now, let me tell you, Boston cops did not want to be with us. They were very reluctant to be doing the search warrant on one of their own guys. Now, the same is going to be true all the way across the country. You know, I understand there's an internal affair guys that do this, but these are regular detectives who came with us, and they weren't happy. As a matter of fact, we got the firebox, and they said, okay, let's go. What do you mean, let's go? The warrant says we can search for other items that might have something to do with this fire. So, you know, we're, Billy and I are trying to search around the rest of the apartment, and these guys are just trying to pull us out. They don't want to be there whatsoever. So, after a few more minutes, we do bail out. And uh, with that, it gets even a little bit crazier because in this small world, Billy Murphy's father-in-law is the head of Boston Internal Affairs. His father-in-law told Billy, who he, he loved Billy dearly, but he said, Billy, you are no longer welcome here. You are persona non grata at Boston PD. And that just shows the feeling that was going on. And the firefighters felt a lot of the same stuff. They would have picnics with these guys. They, they, these arsonists were friends with firefighters. They would go eat in the firehouse with them. And the firefighters would say, God, this guy must be using a lot of gas. Maybe on payday we could take up a, a fund for him and give him some money. He must be going through a 55-gallon drum. They didn't realize what they were actually using. But that's the feelings of a firefighter who's getting beat by this layoffs and by putting themselves out there now when they're shorthanded all the time too. So with that information, with that search warrant, with that evidence, they charged uh, Bobby with receiving stolen property, like kind of big deal, right? It's not really, <laughs> it's not really the biggest case in the world. They took Bobby's gun away and they put him in uh, dispatch. They let him still work. Uh, but he no longer was on the street. He's what they call a turret here. It's, it was the top floor of a Boston police headquarters. And he was a member of dispatch while they conduct, conducted their internal investigation. We tried to interview Bobby again, and we actually had him come in for a polygraph exam. Now, a lot of people say, what good's a polygraph? It's not good in court. And it's not in a lot of jurisdictions, including here. 
what it does for law enforcement, it gives us a second bite at the apple as far as interviewing a person. If you take a polygraph exam and pass, we won't even bother you anymore. It just eliminates you as possibly being involved in this case. Now, there could be some errors sometimes, but it, we feel a person is eliminated if they pass. Bobby flunked that test two thumbs down. I don't know what his game was going to be, why he thought he could fool with us, but he had an attorney with him, too. And the attorney just said to me, Wayne, he can't talk. And I said, what do you mean he can't talk? Is somebody going to kill him? He's afraid to lose his job. What's it mean? The attorney said he can't talk, and they walked out. That was the last time we spoke to Robert the Blue. That was the first week of December, now 1982. We did not speak to him again until January 1984. Oh, really? Yes. A whole nother almost 14 months before we spoke to him again. And I don't want to tell you the rest of it right now. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll keep people on, on the you know, on the hook. Because, I mean, that's the thing with the book. Going back to the book, Burn, Boston, Burn, um, it's a it's a great read and it's so, so in-depth, you know. So I think that anyone that's in law enforcement, anyone who's interested in the arson side, obviously people that just like, you know, true crime. I mean, there's so much detail, but it really does give a... A, a strong insight not only into the environment that initiated this kind of arson spree, but also the different kind of paths that each of these men took. Some were basically completely sociopathic and some were kind of dragged in that were very resistant to being part of it. So I urge everyone <laughs> now that they're on the, the cliffhanger to, uh, to listen. So obviously they, you know, all these, all these people ended up behind bars eventually and, and, and the arson stopped. Um, staying on that, that closure though, what did Boston FD see as far as the Manning? I mean, totally aside from these arsons, but over the, the next couple of decades, were they able to recover? Actually, there was a bill passed in Massachusetts called the Traeger Bill. And I'll, I'll explain more of that in the next, uh, episode that we do. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but, Tragerville got money from the state to give to the cities and towns to rehire some of the laid-off people. And in the city of Boston, they only reopened a couple fire companies, a couple firehouses. As a matter of fact, a couple of those were held hostage by the citizens. The people who actually stayed in these firehouses and uh, just said, we're not going to leave until you reopen these doors. And the Traeger bill did find some money. Uh, some people got re brought back onto the job. But there were many fire companies that never reopened in Boston, ever. Which is insanity. Yes. And the manpower today, I think, is probably back up to about 1700 which... You're talking 1982. You're talking nearly 40 years later. It's back up to that number when we have so many more people and so many more buildings than we ever had. There is not a vacant lot in Boston anymore. Yeah, I'm sure the coal load is so much higher now too, apart from that arson spree, of course. Yes. You know, so 
they're still busy. I mean, they don't have the multiple alarm fires that they did anymore. Uh, you'd be uh, hard-pressed to find in the city of Boston uh, a couple of multiple alarm fires in a month. Um, and you very rarely get over four alarms. But uh, it's just still that they never rehired. And, you know, they were riding with old equipment for years and years, which they finally, in the 2000s, really brought their equipment level up to snuff. Um, you know, interesting part about writing this book is one of the arsonists I still have contact with today. I got insight into not only him, but some of the other guys. And through him, it helped me a lot. I, he's another guy I spent two to 400 hours with after the arrest. But I still speak to him today. I had dinner with him a couple months ago. Um, very unusual relationship. We are very friendly, but I don't exactly invite him to my house. Uh, at Christmas time, he called me up and said, could you meet with me somewhere? I want to buy some books. And we just, my wife and I happened to be going up the highway very close to where he lives. And we jumped off the highway. My wife actually got to meet him. And he bought four or five books. What did he want books for? For Christmas presents. So he's given these books as Christmas presents to his friends about his crimes from 1982 to 1984. What does that say about something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great segue because I was going to ask you that. So going back to, you know, you, I mean, clearly in the book, you really delve into these men's, um, uh, you know, path at that point. But the psychology of an arsonist, and I know, you know, that it was kind of asked in um, National Fire Radio's interview as well, but we hear things like, for example, some get sexual gratification from arson, you know, but you've got these firefighters, you've got these police officers. I love fire. Don't get me wrong. I just lit a match to light a candle in this, this room. And I, <laughs> I just love the smell. And I love the, you know, uh, when you, when you walk out your house, you can smell a brush fire burning. And, um, I've always had open fires in my house when I was growing up in England. But that's where it ends. Like I'm not touching myself looking at fire. You know, I'm not <laughs> deciding to set fire to my city. What is it about the psychology of these people that, you know, creates this completely destructive behavior with, with fire? Uh, you're talking this, these particular group? Uh, just in general. Well, again, there's a lot of motivations. Like you mentioned, you know, that sexual gratification or it's a feeling of power when a person is uh, often a powerless type of person. Um, you know, we get the reasons for setting fires, serial arsonists. Um, they do it to control something that they, again, everything else in their life is beyond their control. So here they can do something. Uh, we had John Orr out in California. John Orr was one of the most well-known fire investigators for the state of California. And for 20 to 30 years, John was probably setting fires. Uh, he wanted to be a L.A. firefighter, L.A. police officer, if, if not be a firefighter. He couldn't get on the job. 
they he didn't even pass his, his psychological exam, but he ended up getting on a job for smaller departments outside of L.A. And because he wanted to be bigger than he was, he started setting a lot of wildland fires. Uh, then he went to some stores and these sort of similar to a Home Depot type of store and setting fires there. And he actually killed a couple people in one of those fires. And he's doing life in prison for that. But it's because he wanted to be more than he ever was going to be in life. And this gave him the power to go back to these fires and actually investigate them and say, oh, here, guys, I know where it is. This is where it started, you know, that type of thing. Because it gave him like a hero. There's a lot of hero complexes, too. Um, people who discover a lot of fires in their lives. Uh, I have personally discovered one fire in my life. Uh, I have set over 100. Oh, there's my confession. <laughs> you got this on tape. <laughs> yeah, you need corroboration, though. Confession doesn't stand alone. But I've, <laughs> I've set 100 training fires in my past. But I actually, coming home one night, saw some bushes outside somebody's house on fire. It was Christmas time and the, the uh, lighting system failed. But, uh, you know, when you get, say, a security guard or a person involved with police or fire and they, they happen to be the one who's always on the scene when something happens, uh, you might have to start looking at that type of person. Um, you know, some of these guys, um, Greg Bemis is, is the one arsonist who his journal helped me write the book. When you read this book, it reads a lot like fiction because there's a lot of dialogue. You saw the dialogue between arsonists. That's, that stuff is true because I interviewed Greg for two to four hundred hours before trial. And Greg is the one that I have, um, this relationship with now. I know what he told me back then. I had, we had tape recordings eventually of some of these people. I know what they sounded like and what, what they said to each other. And when Greg wrote this journal when he was in prison, which I have the journal, and that's a basis for the part in the book where the arsonists are, I know what they're doing. I know what they're going through the backyard. I know what they're going into the basement. And I know when they got spider webs because of Greg Bemis, that type of thing. So, but Greg, his mom used to take him to fires when he was just a youngster. His mom was a fire buff. And... She would never have set a fire, and Greg probably would have never have set a fire in his life if his mom hadn't died when he, when he was only 16, and he go, we used to go to the grave and talk to her, and at the cemetery he would set some fires. So, what was going on in his mind? You know, he was, he was a young man who was somewhat lost. His Greg's father moved to Maine by the time Greg was 17, and Greg stayed back here in Massachusetts. And he missed his mom greatly. And I'm not saying that all of us have stories and all of us have hardships. That doesn't make us criminals. Um, but would Greg have graduated to this level if Proposition 2.5 didn't happen? And uh, each one of them has a story as to why they became an arsonist in a sense. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to hear. And thank you for that, because I think we have a tendency to look for the reason singular when obviously when it, whether it's mental health, physical health, you know, some of these, these murders that we see, it's, it's never a thing. It's, it's a layering of all these different things that created the perfect storm. And obviously with him, that for whatever happened or whatever reason that those, those 
events all piled on top of each other created that environment for him to be one of those arsonists. Correct. Yeah, no, I, I, my second book that I'm writing now, um, it's going to be some gun cases, some bombing cases, and some more fire cases. Uh, one of them is a garden country serial arsonist that we had in Massachusetts. We, we coined that phrase for him because he was setting all different types of churches and American Legion VFW is on fire. And um, Mr. Dix, James Dix, it's all public record stuff, so I can say his name. And he went through multiple adjudications. Uh, he was hearing voices. I, I interviewed him five times. And he eventually told me he was hearing voices, but the voices never, ever told him to set fires, according to Jim. Um, but I'm not sure if that's true or not, because Jim set fires and he was a very unusual. He did not fit profile in a lot of ways, and then he fit profile in other ways. And um, I had another serial arsonist up in New Hampshire. He was setting occupied houses on fire in the middle of the night. Really? In a very small town of only oh, 15,000 people. And um, he would sit there and he would actually take a blowtorch, you know, one of the ones with the little tank on it, and sit there and blow a hole through the siding of the house. And that's how he was setting his fires. And he eventually set his own brother's house on fire. And he did that because his brother was married to a woman for 10 years. And his brother tossed her out all of a sudden. Now, that woman was the arsonist's caretaker in a sense. He lived in a trailer with no electricity and no running water, but his brother had this beautiful log cabin, and his brother treated him extremely well, and the wife cooked for him and cleaned his clothes for him, but now his brother tossed his wife out because he was fooling around with some other woman. And the poor arsonist now strikes back at his brother, angry at his brother, as part of a spree of about 26 fires that we know he said. But uh, why did he hit out all these other people in the middle of the night, occupied houses? And he was a call firefighter who got dismissed from the fire department because he was afraid to go into burning buildings or climb ladders. Really? And so he decides to set all these fires instead? Yes, exactly. It's crazy. I think this this is such a great conversation. I've obviously touched on some incredible men and women in the fire service and in, in law enforcement. And actually, with uh, with Ron Stallworth, you know, we talk about um, you know some of the the police shootings, for example, that shouldn't have happened, the ones that were completely wrong. Um, but it's important that obviously we highlight the same in our profession. That um, and I think that's why. It worries me with the lowering of the bar that we're seeing in, in the hiring practice that, you know, not everyone is supposed to be a firefighter. Those, that gauntlet is there for a reason. The same in, in law enforcement. You know, we're supposed to have that probation because lives are at stake, you know. So, um, you know, I think psychological valuation has, has a place, but I think, you know, the background checks these days are, are equally good because you see a paper trail. But what I've talked about in several episodes now is is offering counseling at the front door. So if some of these people maybe uh, have some trauma to deal with, that, that you can actually offload it before you enter that that profession. But it's very interesting to hear, you know, 
shitty firefighter stories, basically, because, you know, we, we hear about police all the time, but I mean, there are obviously are many, many men and women that have entered our profession that also had no business being there in the first place. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Right. Well, you, you, you hit on a couple of, uh, um, other cases. There are other cases on top of that, the, um, notable ones as far as your career. Well, in the fire business alone, I mean, I was at the DuPont Plaza Hotel Fire in Puerto Rico. Um, that happened on uh, New Year's Eve back in 1986. In the, uh, the DuPont Plaza had a casino, and there was employee problems going on. They, were, they had a meeting at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It broke up at 3.20. Uh, employees were thinking about going on strike, and a couple of these guys had set a couple closet fires during the previous week that didn't extend any place. But on this night, uh, this afternoon at about 3.24 p.m., they set fire to a large stack of brand new furniture that was still in boxes. So we're talking desks and mattresses, uh, chairs in cardboard boxes. And that, that pile was maybe 35 feet long and was about six to eight feet high. And that was in the ballroom. And they used sterno cans to set fire to it. Uh, sterno is what you see uh, warming up food in restaurants or a Chinese restaurant. If you go to a buffet, it's underneath and it keeps the uh, container of food warm. Yeah. So they lit a few of them, and, uh, three, three containers, I think, and threw them into the stack of furniture. And, you know, people who set these fires, almost any arsonist who sets a fire doesn't realize how a fire can get out of hand. And in that case, in a matter of 20 minutes, that fire went from that ballroom, lower level, to the main lobby, flashed all the way across the main lobby, um, and flashed out the opposite side of the building. We're talking 300 feet in less than 20 minutes' time. And the casino at 3 o'clock, they always kept count of people in casinos and there were 300 people in that casino at three o'clock and at about 3:30 or so when the smoke starts infiltrating the area and starts coming from the ballroom side there was no training for employees what do you do with all the money that's on the tables etc there were no fire alarms there was no sprinkler system there was virtually no hose system because when hose was brought out was all dry rot with big holes in it. Um, so the first smoke, the casino is like horseshoe shaped, and the first glass doorway could not be used as a means of escape because that's where the smoke first smoke came. So everybody went to the opposite side of the casino, closest to the exterior far end of the building, and they tried getting through a regular. 36 inch door that opened inward to the casino. So you've got a crush of 300 people who are trying to get out through this one door when it opens inward. And then flashover occurred in the lobby. So I put the fire directly in front of that doorway. They closed the doorway. Windows went from floor to ceiling, about 12 foot high windows. They were smashed out. And people were falling and jumping out of some of the windows. A 20 foot drop. One husband jumped out, turned around when he got on the ground to catch his wife. 
she was forever sitting in that window. Flashover went through the casino and killed her and about 87 people in the casino and 97 people all told in the hotel. And uh, we were on a plane. I was a member of the national response team, which normally responds any place in the United States within 24 hours after an incident. Uh, so that fire happened approximately 5 o'clock Eastern time. And I was on a plane at 8 a.m. on New Year's morning for Puerto Rico. And I spent the next eight days along with FBI recovery team, an Air Force forensics team. Um, it took a long time to get the bodies out of that one end of the casino that was stacked on top of each other. That type of thing, uh, we had no counseling back then. You know how we have peer counseling now for incidents? Uh, there was nothing like that then. And, you know, that those type of fires haunt you forever. Uh, you can't help but think about them and the people. I interviewed a... Um, I was on a camera, actually, while a uh, Puerto Rican police officer was with me interviewing one of the casino employees, and he showed us his movements through the casino while I have my camera pointed at him, and I'm getting the uh, translation from the police officer on, on tape. And he's explaining, he goes to the far end, and when the crowd turned back, and he's trying to move forward. And it was became, he said, virtually every person for himself. And he said he's over by the window. And he had no idea how he ended up down on the ground below. No idea whatsoever. But before he fell out that window, he called one of his buddies who's further down in the casino. And he saw him ignite from the waist up. Oh, God. And, you know, those stories are horrendous. Um I was at the Meridian Bank building in Philadelphia. I think it was 93. Three firefighters. The fire actually occurred in a 32-story high-rise. And Philadelphia did not want the national response team. They wanted to investigate their own, but they did invite three of us from ATF, and I was one who was fortunate enough to assist them with that fire scene. The fire started on, I think, the 19th floor and did not get extinguished until it was on the 29th. Because they have a grandfather clause in Philadelphia where you sprinkle anything 30 and above. I don't know why you don't sprinkle below 30, but they, they sprinkled that particular building on the 30th floor and it helped put the fire out. But three firefighters lost, lost their lives. They were on the radio saying, we are running out of oxygen. And can we break a window? And this shows how dedicated and how disciplined the fire service guys are. Can we break a window? Because if you're going to break a window on 424, where's it going to come down and who's it going to hurt or how is it going to change the fire dynamics? Those three guys died in that room. And um, their hand marks were actually on the wall. It, you know, it's, again, pretty devastating. And then I was at the Worcester Warehouse. Uh, did you hear about the Worcester Six, we call it? Yeah. Yes, sir. We just had the 20th anniversary, uh, December 3rd, this past December. Um, that fire occurred at 5 o'clock at night. There was in the uh, six-story cold storage warehouse, something built before we had refrigeration. So you, 
you put your meat in these buildings, they had 18 thick, 18 inch thick masonry walls that were lined with cork and insulation. So you could keep meat hanging and stuff and keep it chilled. Uh, but it was an abandoned building and a couple home, homeless people caused the fire. And, uh, when I saw it on the six o'clock news, I responded immediately without being called. Uh, Worcester, Mass is about oh, 20 miles from my house. And uh, I spent the next eight days, I did go home, got a few hours sleep, but I did spend the next eight days there because two firefighters got lost and two firefighters went in to look for them and then two other firefighters went in to look for them. So he lost six firefighters, and it took eight days to recover the sixth body. And um, I was there every single day, and so so many weird things happened on that fire games. It, um, when they announced the discovery of the remains of the last firefighter, the back wall of this building still stood five stories above the second floor, which every other wall was pretty much down, but we still were in a hazardous condition with this wall five stories above made of brick. And we had people on the deck every single day cleaning off layer after layer to try to find the remains of the bodies and keep some control so the investigation uh, could still have integrity as far as evidence goes. So when they announced they found remains of firefighter Brotherton, the last firefighter. Um, you know the procedure. The firefighters all line up and stand at attention. And in that particular case, I'm standing there on the ground outside the building, about five stories up. All of a sudden, on that brick wall with some of that cork and uh, impregnated with uh, petroleum product, it caught on fire. Really? This, this is the eighth day after the fire is extinguished. And I'm talking only an area that's probably three feet by three feet. It caught on fire way up there, five stories above the ground, or the, the floor that they were working on. When the firefighter remains were carried off in the procession off the building, that fire up there extinguished. Just by itself? I got, I got shivers just telling you right now. Yeah, my goodness. You know, what What was that? You know, is, is that your higher being at that point? I mean, fire science doesn't make sense that it could catch on fire up there some eight days later and then go out by itself just another 20 or 30 minutes later. It just doesn't make fire science sense. So... Those, those are some of the uh, big fire cases I've had. Um, I sometimes teach a large loss investigation class, and I include those in the class. Yeah, well, thank you for, for telling those. I mean, they're, they're very powerful, and, you know, it just illustrates, again, so many people have had on this show, you know, myself included, I mean, a 14-year career, what these men and women see, whether it's arson, whether it's, you know, morticians you know whatever it is that there's these 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 uh professions 
that hold society together that do the things that most people don't want to do. And I just had Travis Howes on the show who um, was one of the Charleston firefighters that went in, you know, to, to recover the bodies of his nine fallen, you know, brothers. So, you know, it's people don't realize just just these horrific things that, that people have to do and no one complains about it. But it's so important now, as you mentioned at the beginning, that we do have the tools to be able to process that because that's not what a normal human being is supposed to see. That's absolutely right. And I did go to that fire on the private side. I was working on behalf of an insurance company, uh, Charleston Fire also. Oh, really? Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, now speaking of that, so now we are in 2020. Have you found any tools, counseling, anything like that, that, that you found to be helpful after such a full career? I personally have not partaken in anything, but um, I, I know that the major departments here and the counties here supply uh, counseling when anything happens immediately, immediately. Um, interesting thing is I am also going to be on another podcast. Oh, really? Yes, sir. Uh, the Art of Communication. Okay, brilliant. Brilliant. And um, I don't want to get this wrong. Are you part of the counseling? Um, no. So, so I... I know there are some groups down south that are, you know, that are peer um, counselors as well. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm attached to all these groups, but I'm not a counselor specifically. I retired from the fire service about 18 months ago. So it's the other group that does an awful lot of uh, podcasts and a lot of counseling uh, efforts. And uh, my stepson, is a professor of kinesiology and biology, nutrition, and uh, he has his doctorate. And he has worked out a lot his life, uh, physical worked out. And he has found, and he is now teaching this, and he just did a statewide, um, I don't know, nationwide actually program where physical exercise is helping with depression and possibly with the police and firefighters who are committing suicide at an alarming rates. And what's his name? Uh, Jason Sawyer. Jason Sawyer, brilliant. Okay, I'll have to look him up. Um, I checked, I googled him recently and it mentioned something about that. And he is just about to with psychologists who have been reaching out to him to say, how can we join forces with you? How can resistance training, that's what he's doing, resistance training, and how that helps with the metabolism and the hormones to help people not the depression and the other issues that they have. I've had uh, several guests on the show who come from the strength and conditioning world that have talked about that. The, the body keeps the score. You, know, you hold all that that trauma in in your body that that you've seen that you've gone through and so the same way as it's held there you can use exercise to offload a lot of it as long as you understand you know that it has to be a lower intensity sometimes so that you're not adding stress on stress but yeah there's there's absolutely a relationship between physical fitness and mental health you know i could see 30 years ago i went through a divorce and i i remarried uh, almost 25 years ago but when I went through the divorce, I started running. 
Um, a lot of people substitute one thing for another after when they're under stress. And uh, I started running. And I ran an awful lot, and I got a lot out of it. It really helped uh, mentally. And then, you know, physically it got you in better shape also. But um, it, it definitely helps. Yeah, no question. Well, I wanted just to cover one other question, one other topic and then go to some closing questions so I can let you go. I know we've already hit almost 90 minutes. Um, but as far as seam preservation, I'm sure a lot of people listening, uh, law enforcement or, or fire, as firefighters especially, how can we assist you guys or, or us and investigators, um, to set you up for success when, when everything's completely out and, and it's your turn to kind of step in and do your bit? You know, after nearly 40 years of being involved with fire fire investigation, and then I became a certified fire investigator who my expertise uh, has become origin and cause. And that's what you're asking. So firefighters have a duty when they get to a building. They have to try to save any lives that still might be in jeopardy. They have to keep themselves safe. And they have to try to save as much of a property as they can. So... That's the first focus, those three issues right there. You're a firefighter. If you have another one, you just interrupt me and let me know. Um, But um, you have to have meetings ahead of time. You have to have the training um, for what you guys could keep your eyes or ears open to. Um, Yeah, you have a lot going on, and you're very busy. But if you can minimize some of the issues that, you know, destroying certain parts of a building and throwing stuff out. Um, you know, some fire departments absolutely clean the room of origin out, throw everything out the window. So for investigators, they have to a lot of times try to bring those items back in. And, you know, they don't, fire investigators need to see the evidence in the best condition it can be after it's partially destroyed by fire already. Um, so, you have overhaul, which, you know, that process of looking for hidden fire and, and tearing down some ceilings and wall, those walls and ceilings also have a lot of patterns on it that can help, but you have your job to do to make sure that fire doesn't spread when you're ready to leave or that bad word rekindle. Oh, God, <laughs> the R word. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but if you even tear the ceilings and walls down and just leave the material right there, that would be helpful. Um, try not to, you know, take the bedding and throw it outside. It's hard for us to even to, without the interview information, to figure out sometimes exactly where that bed might have been, if, especially if the walls are also torn down so you can't see that pattern against the wall where the bed used to sit up against. Um, and, you know, when you use generators, um, Things like that, you got to put them in such a place that you don't fill them up directly where you walk in and out. So you're carrying gasoline and some mixture of petroleum products in and out all the time. Um, the accelerant detection canines that we use, um, they need to have as pristine a scene as possible to do their job properly, too, for arson purposes. But, uh, there's so many accidental fire cases and anyone's bedroom nowadays with a TV set and, you know, the computers and uh, DVD players and um, your hoverboards and your phone chargers 
in one bedroom, there can be about 18 different accidental electrical potentials, electronics, uh, do cause fires. Never mind the smoking or the vaping or the batteries that could be exploding from any device. Uh, I scare people regularly. <laughs> it was the uh, Catholic um, prayer candles that I saw a lot cause in, um, in California. There's a lot of people from Mexico, so that was a big cause of origin there. And for a while, we had a lot of um, incense. You know, people just stuck them in little spots in the wall and stuff like that. And, you know, it it fall off onto paper or something, the incense. Uh, I had a gentleman who had a fire. Um, it really looked like an electric uh, heater that was installed in the wall. Um, and I had worked on behalf of those heater companies. But I was there as a first-party investigator at that point. And I looked seriously at that heater, and there was nothing wrong with it. There was no – the coils didn't have a – from uh, the fire. Once you pull the heater out of the wall, the patterns didn't emanate from that. And I talked to the guy. I asked him, does he, does he smoke? And nowadays you have to ask, do you smoke pot beyond smoking cigarettes? Because he said, if you look me up, I'm the president of the main chapter of marijuana uh, growers or whatever. And this was 15 years ago. And uh, he was proud of it. And I said, well, were you smoking in the house? When, because he wasn't living there, actually. He was only he was living with his girlfriend a mile down, but he had some heaters on to keep the pipe breathing. So he went to check, and he said, yeah, I, I was. I said, well, can you trace your tracks? Tell me where you went. And I think he actually just lost some of his marijuana ash in a box full of posters. He had film posters that he would sell, um, you know, like, Marlon Brando, that type of thing. And these posters were perfect uh, kindling fuel for a fire. Um, so if you start tossing all that stuff around and out, then it just makes that scene so much harder for the origin and cause investigators. Right. That's that's a very interesting. Anaheim I worked for in California, I th- they had a great system. At the time when I was there, their arson guys were actually sworn police officers as well. So they went through the academy, they got to carry a sidearm and they did interviews. Um, but they would be on on scene of all our fires. So we do the initial knockdown, we would, you know, obviously make sure it was it was out technically, but but do minimal overhaul. They would then come in, you know, shovel up whatever they need to, do look for the patterns. And then once they gave us the all clear, they took the pictures. Then, as you mentioned, we would turn that room into bare studs. I mean, everything would come out. Obviously, unless it was like a, you know, a cupboard fire or something small, but we weren't allowed to do that until they came in. And what I've seen, you know, conversely, um, other places I've worked is, you know, it is a tiny little fire and they start pulling off, you know, cupboards off the damn walls and just overhauling areas that don't even make any sense. It's nowhere near, you know, the where the, the seat of the fire was. So it's good to hear that because I think we need to be reminded because you tend to get moth to the flame when you have a structure fire. But once it's out, now you pump the brakes and, and give you guys a chance to, you know, potentially take a serial arsonist off the street by what we leave behind for you. Well, you're, you're exactly right. Now, try to picture this one. Uh, Washington, D.C., ATF had the luxury of a partnership with the D.C. Fire Department where the CFI, Certified Fire Investigators uh, from ATF, would go for six weeks at a time and sleep in a firehouse. And the D.C. Fire Investigators actually go to every single fire in D.C. 
but they don't respond right away. They wait until they're called, so they're not just standing around twiddling their thumbs. So um, I'm there, and we have a fire in Georgetown. It's about a four or five-story apartment building, but a big brick, you know, 20, 30 units, that type. And uh, fires, say, on the second floor in one apartment. The apartment only consists of basically one room. It's got the kitchen, bedroom, living room, all wide open, and then just the bathroom. And I get up into the lobby area on the second floor, and the firefighters always, once the fire's out, they always call for the fire investigators before they do anything else. And then they clean to the studs like you're talking about. So they didn't clean anything. But can you imagine? I stepped into that apartment, and I never even touched the floor in that apartment. As soon as you stepped in, I was actually, I stepped upward. And I'm asking the firefighters, I said, did you guys do this? What is this? They said, no, it's the way we found it. The particular guy was a hoarder way back in the QVC early days. He would buy all new products from QVC and just his entire apartment. I couldn't even see his bed. I asked him once he showed up while we were doing our investigation. I said, where do you sleep? He said, I push the stuff just over enough and I sleep on the bed. But I'm telling you, you couldn't see anything. So he had a regular size refrigerator. And he said that stopped working. So he bought from QVC, he bought one of those, you know, three, four foot high ones. And he said that stopped working. And then he bought another one. And as we investigated that fire, it was the refrigerator motor down below the compressor area that froze up because he stacked so much stuff around it that it couldn't work properly. And that's why the other two failed. <laughs> and so the fire actually molded together a bunch of items stuck together on the floor. Now, if firefighters had previously cleaned that area out, we wouldn't have seen a lot of that. And besides, the cockroaches that jumped out when I put my... <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen, I've seen so many. I don't know what it was again, but, but California, my God, that the pack rats that we'd have there and, and you'd walk through on a medical call and just be, you know, like if I had a, if I had a fire that there's no way. I mean, norm, normally they'd end up being morbidly obese. I don't know what the correlation was between the two, but, um, yeah, I mean, they, they were done, but I just can't imagine being an arson investigator having to sift through a hoarder house. That must be your worst nightmare. Absolutely awful. Right. Well, I want to transition. I, I firstly want to thank you so much for, for, you know, telling so many amazing stories from your career. Um, so let's get to the book. So the, the first book you've written, you're writing the second now is Burn, Boston, Burn. Um, so where can people find that? Uh, Burn, Boston, Burn. I just found out it's Target selling it, uh, in Walmart. I was shocked. Uh, I just found it out within the last couple of days. Brilliant. Uh, but um, Amazon Amazon has it, and I have my own website, uh, burnbostonburn.com. And the difference between buying from them or me, uh, I personally will sign them, and I put them in the envelope. I had one picked up by the post office outside the front door this today, and um, you won't get it signed any other way unless you go to one of my speaking events, which... I have now had a dozen canceled, uh, like everybody else. But uh, I will be picking up again later this year. I have several uh, tour events. I'm still trying to make it to the great state of Florida to do one of those events. But I'm scheduled for Georgia, Arizona, Chicago, 
um, Indianapolis. Those are still on because they're later in the year. But uh, otherwise, if you would just uh, go to my website and I will uh, sell either the hardcover or the paperback to you at that point. And it is audible on uh, Amazon. And there's a Kindle also. I had a Massachusetts guy do the narration on the Audible, and uh, I thought it came out pretty well. It did, and I'll say because I've talked about this before. I, I've, there's some audio books that I've loved, and there's some audio books where I cringe because the book is so good, but the person they chose to narrate it was just a very bad fit, in my opinion. Um, and yours is great. I mean, you know, it it like you said, there's a lot of detail in the book, and and it really does. He he delivers it in a, in a very in the fashion where it, it tells the story, it paints the picture. So I think you made a good choice there. Good. Thank you. I'll let him know. Ah, please do. All right. Um, and then when you get to Florida, please let me know when you do book somewhere. Um, when uh, The first closing question that I'd like to ask, is there a book someone else has written that you love to recommend? It can be about arson or it can be something completely different. Uh, yeah, I, I do a ton of reading. Um, if you had me on visual right now, you would see behind me part of my 1,000 hardcover book library. Um, my wife and I both have loved reading for a long period of time. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, wrote one. It's it's true crime, very different. It's uh, called Shots in the Dark by Dan Zimmerman. Um, it's about a thug, a He's a member of a family from the north end of Boston, all Italians at that point in time. And he wasn't really a member of the mob, but it's a, it's really about one night and about a love story at the same time. Uh, but uh, it, dishonesty in the Boston police at the time, and it's an intriguing little story. Um, then on the fiction side, I've been really promoting a uh, former ATF agent's son. Andrew Watts, W-A-T-T-S. Andrew wrote a couple different series of books. He was he went to Annapolis, and he became a helicopter pilot uh, in the Navy, uh, working on those uh, major drug cases and uh, the pirates, like in the Mediterranean. And Andrew has written a series called the War Planner series, and I just completed it uh, two days ago. Um, it's five books, I think, altogether. The War Planner series talks about how China wants to take over the United States and actually the world, in a sense. And it's not true, but let me tell you, it scared the heck out of me because it could be true what the way he... They describe him as another Tom Clancy, and I like him. I have all Clancy books right over here beyond, over my shoulder, but, uh, and I read quite a few of those, but the detail of Clancy uh, got too much for me sometimes, where Andrew has the right amount of detail. And let me tell you, his story is so dramatic, and it is scary. And this time of being scary about the virus, I'll let you get scared by something totally different and let you forget about the virus. Andrew Watts and the War Planner series. Brilliant. Well, I haven't had either of those two recommended, so they both sound great. Thank you so much for that. Um, what about movies? Are there any movies that you love? Well, I actually like the one that you talked about. Uh, I can't think of the name. The, uh, the uh, gentleman who infiltrated the 
KKK. The Black Klansman. Oh, I loved it. It's great, wasn't it? <laughs> Excellent. And then what about a, a documentary? I haven't seen one lately and I'm not good at remembering names. Uh, thanks. No problem. No problem at all. All right, next question then. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? If you haven't had some of the commissioners from New York City uh, police. No, none of them yet. Uh, there's a, I think he's on the job now, Miller again. He's not related to me. Um, he's an excellent speaker. He's been on TV a lot. Um, you look up some of the past couple commissioners. They are excellent. And they what goes on in the city of New York, which is really one of the heartbeats of our country. Um, it's an iconic city for those who have never been there. It's, it's an amazing city. And Boston is so small. Uh, one mile across downtown each way, north and south, east and west, that's Boston, one mile each way. And we have nearly a million people in the entire city of Boston. And you're talking New York with eight or nine million and the size of the city and just everything about it. Uh, it is, uh, so the police down there and the, and the fire departments have amazing stories about their histories and about their own careers, uh, about some traumatic fires beyond 9-11, which everybody has a story down there for that and uh, that horrible tragedy that's still ongoing. But nobody specifically beyond um, uh, Commissioner Miller. Okay. Well, that's a great suggestion. Thank you very much. All right. So then the very last question before we just recap wherever we can find you online. Um, what do you do to decompress when you're not writing or assisting investigations still? Um, I love to read. <laughs> I really do. Uh, the book took me away from reading so much by writing the book. Now, you know, this my book because the Boston Globe newspaper was going to write an article on it. And I met with the reporter along with the former supervisor and a former U.S. attorney. And he said he might do a bigger project, meaning a book. I've been wanting to do this book for a long time. So the very next day, two years ago, January, I started typing every single night. I missed 24 days the rest of the year. And... The Red Sox were in the background a lot, and that was happened to be a championship year for them, so it was an extended season. But they're in the background, and my wife loves to watch sports too, but she reads constantly while she's watching it. And I'm over there. I got my research material, and I'm typing away, and I missed my reading so much. I, I tried to, between 4 and 5 p.m. every day, just give myself an hour of reading. And uh, I work out. Uh, regularly, um, join the same gym that my wife's been at, which is obviously closed now, but we have good workout equipment right here and I'm doing online working out. Um, but I worked out four to five days a week for just about a year, uh, during, uh, the whole process of writing and then getting the book edited and then getting it marketed. So it's, uh, exercise and grandchildren and reading. Brilliant. Love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of halfway through a book or, or two thirds technically through a book. 
But um, yeah, I, I thought it was going to be this kind of like, um, oh God, what was her name? Jessica Fletcher on the beginning of Murder, She Wrote, just tapping away and then you pull it out and you're done. And no, it's been like pulling teeth <laughs> trying to get this thing done. So I could kind of relate to to that. You know, there's so many things I want to be doing rather than sitting at a computer. But but I think it'll just like yours, you know, the, the finished product is going to be um, worth it the same way as obviously you, you've told an incredible story that not only is fascinating to people but also there's a lot of lessons to be learned there as well especially if you're now our professions associated um you know some things that now once you've read that might be red flags and might help you prevent something in the future yourself that's that's right you know i, I want to backtrack on you talked about background at the very beginning yes so you know as a young kid i did like to write and then in college again i thought i'd go into uh, architecture and one of my criminal justice professors said to me at one point, he says, you're wasting your time trying to be a cop or something. You should be a lawyer or something, you know. So now think about what happened in my career when I eventually get to fires. Um, writing reports constantly. We have expert reports on the private side that are 65 pages long. Um, eventually writing a book. Architecture. You know, you, know, you have to know your buildings. If you're going to do fires, you have to know the processes that are going on within that building, how the fire spread, um, what happened throughout that entire structure. So that architecture came to play, uh, the engineering background, because fire is a lot to do with engineering in a lot of ways. And then the attorney part. Well, I assisted U.S. attorneys and district attorneys for all of my criminal justice career. And then when you get on the private side, you do the same thing because a lot of those attorneys did not know anything about fire. So you worked with them constantly. And so I combined all those things that were aspects of my life growing up into my final career. Yeah, that's something I've seen a lot. I mean, I, even myself, I grew up on a farm and my dad was a vet, so I was exposed to... The medical side and then obviously the you know blood and guts and all that stuff and grew up around a, a large family that we always had clients coming through so we had this big you know kitchen table and there'd be a lot of banter and it, and it served me so well later in in the fire service but even you know like my education was was physical fitness i did um exercise physiology in college and now here i am doing you know a podcast on on wellness so steve jobs i know talks about he did calligraphy in college and that years and years and years later came into effect when he started putting fonts into the first Apple computers. So just because now you feel like you wasted your time doing whatever, that, as you said, may well play into something 10 years from now that you had no idea was coming. Exactly. Brilliant. All right. Well, then I want to just re you know underline where people can find you. So the, the website was burnbostonburn.com. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, and then what about online? Do you have any any social media platforms? You know, I never did before this book came out. And <laughs> I realized I had to. Um, Facebook is also Burn Boston Burn. I didn't do it in my name. And LinkedIn, uh, my next door neighbors said around Thanksgiving, you should get on LinkedIn. And now I have 3,700 connections, which are all in the police, almost all of it, in the police and fire uh, fields. I I connect with them regularly and uh, get them interested in 
my book, uh, I just had a woman from Florida. Um, ooh, if I could click on that, but I just, her book today that I got sent out from my house. She was from Florida, and she's a firefighter. And um, so, and that came about by LinkedIn. So, so burn Boston, burn all the way around. Brilliant. And yeah, LinkedIn was where we met, wasn't it? Yes, it is. Yep, perfect. Actually, my, I've got to update mine. One of my friends told me I've, I think I've got the absolute basal amount on there, so I've got to I've got to do that myself on this time that we have. But Wayne, I just want to say thank you so much. We were talking for almost two hours in the end, but um, you know, I'm glad that we managed to not only cover the book, but obviously really extend out to other areas of your career because I know that was just a you know a short period of your of your whole profession in um, ATF. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Sure, no problem at all. Uh, we are trying to make this into a movie, by the way. Oh, excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing how that progresses. We have a couple of producers who have expressed some interest, so uh, hopefully that will happen.